So my guest today, James Gordon, studied to become a psychiatrist at Harvard. He became a clinical professor at Georgetown Med School, was chairman under Presidents Clinton and uh, George W. Bush of the White House Commission on Complementary and Alternative Medicine Policy, and really deeply involved in the world of government and trying to investigate what's working and what's not working in the world of health and medicine. And the further sort of he moved into the field, the more constrained he started to feel by the rules and traditions all around him. And the kind of inner advocate and activist and rebel inside him kept challenging the system and searching for new and different ways to help people and feel better. That led him eventually to create a really different integrated approach that draws upon self-awareness and self-care and group support to heal population-wide psychological trauma and then found the nonprofit Center for Mind-Body Medicine in D.C. His latest book, The Transformation, helps us understand that trauma will come sooner or later to all of us as a part of the human experience, not as a pathological anomaly. And he guides us to kind of step in a comprehensive evidence-based program to reverse the psychological, the biological damage that trauma causes. He really shows drawing on a lot of research and 50 years of clinical experience and, and a lot of wisdom and inspiring stories, how we can really meet the challenges that trauma brings, um, discover the ordinary joys as well as the meaning purpose of our lives. And he's also got a fascinating lens on healing trauma, both on an individual level, but also on a societal and global scale and the importance of looking out into the community as part of the process. We dive into all of this in our conversation today. So excited to share it with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Curious what originally brought you to want to explore medicine, even as a devotion? Well, I had a, my father was a surgeon and uh, he was not the easiest man on the planet, to say the least, but he was really good with his patients and he loved what he did. So that was an influence. And my mother's father had been a pediatrician and I didn't know him particularly well, but through my mother, there was again the sense of sense of service, a sense of compassion, a sense of concern for, you know, for people who were in trouble. And in both cases, uh, not just people who had money, but also people who had no money at all. So I had a sense of being a physician as being something useful, as being a, a work of service, something I could make a living at. Right from the beginning, uh, and I also I grew up in this chaotic family. So from the time I was five or six, I was kind of like a uh, a couples therapist for my parents. I remember running back and forth between them when they were shouting at each other when I was five years old, trying to help each one uh, calm down a little and understand and listen to the other, and then running to the other one and sort of going back and forth. So I had some early training, and um, the story. When I was about eight years old, my father said to me, he talked like they said, Jimmy, that's the way he talked, Jimmy, uh, what are you going to be when you grow up? And I said, well, either a farmer or a rabbi. And he looked at me and he said, what the hell you want to do that for? <laughs> I said, well, uh, you know, I, I like animals and I like to grow things. So it'd be nice to be a farmer and a rabbi helps people. And my father said, Jimmy. Doctors help people a hell of a lot more than rabbis do. And if you're a doctor, you can make enough money so you can have a farm. If you're a doctor, you can do anything. He didn't say quite that gently, but I took that in. I can do anything. And so that's really what I paid attention to all along. I've done my best, not without some you know, hiccups or obstacles along the way, but I've done my best to do what felt right to me and felt right to me in relationship to my patients and to the world I was living in. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious, um, getting that advice from your dad, sort of being wired the way you, you're wired, which seems like there's a sort of like a very empathic heart behind it all. And then seeing how you describe your dad was one way with his patients, but very differently with you. Did that create any any level of sort of cognitive dissonance about... I, I would say so. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was, but it, yeah, it was... Um... It was peculiar, it was, but it was it, it, what it did really is it made me want to connect with him more. That was a place where mm. I could connect with him, with that tenderness in him. And occasionally when I was sick myself, he would be much more tender to me. Interesting. Uh, it's a good thing I didn't take that in too much and become a sick person in order to get attention. But it was just something that I was able to notice and I could feel that in him. And 
I suppose that's you know that also comes out of me that it's very that it's easy and one of the the graces of being a physician is it's such an easy place for that tenderness to come out to other people yeah. and one of the tragedies of course is that physicians are now sort of moving so quickly and operating according to algorithms predetermined ways of doing things that they don't have that opportunity and of course their patients don't either yeah i mean it, it really does seem like that is an almost tragic shift that's happened over the last maybe two decades in the practice. And I feel like it's also, and I'm actually curious because you'll you'll see this a lot more than, than I would, whether you feel like it's actually either driving people out of the profession or stopping them from entering. I, I, I think both. Yeah. There are people who are, you look at some of the studies when we're, we're doing a training program, I always am, we're working with professionals. Yeah. Some are health professionals, mental health professionals, educators, community organizers, leaders of women's groups. Health professionals and mental health professionals are getting burnt out. They're not satisfied. And in the studies that have been done, very significant percentages of them say, I wouldn't go into it if I had it to do over again. Mm. And I would, this is particularly with medicine, and when they ask the question, well, what would you say to young people? Many doctors say, I would tell them not to go into medicine. And... In my, as I was growing up, everybody thought it was a wonderful profession to right. go into. You could help other people. You could make a decent living. And it was always interesting. And it continues to be that way for me. And psychiatry, I think, has suffered the worst. When, hmm, I, when I was so. in medical school, 10% of my class, this was Harvard Medical School, right. 10% of my class went into psychiatry. And we were no dopier than anyone else in the class. It was, we were, now it's 1% or 2%. Because psychiatry has become so narrow, so focused on simply giving medication interesting. that it's no longer interesting. And so some of the best students that I've had as a, you know, now as a professor, uh, medical students who would, are interested in psychiatry wind up not going into it. They go into pediatrics, they go into internal medicine or family medicine because they say, I'm going to have more opportunity to be with people when I go into there. So Interesting. So there's literally been about a 90% reduction in the people that are focusing. I wouldn't say that's a, a controlled right. study. Your, but your that's experience. My, that's yeah. what I've observed. That's what yeah. I hear from the students and see. Yeah. yeah. And, and on the one hand, it makes sense. And on the other hand, the need for people who understand conditions of the mind has never been higher. Um, so to know that, but I guess the actual, you know, like the medical practice of psychiatry has changed so dramatically, and it, and I guess is now so much more focused on medicine. That yeah, that makes sense. In, That's right. Then people who want to be psychotherapists go into clinical social work right. or psychology, right, right. which also have been constrained in certain ways by this whole medical model, this narrow medical model. Yeah. By my assistant Tatiana. Uh, who's going to be going to medical school next fall, she's determined to go into psychiatry and, you know, do something like what I'm doing um, and change psychiatry, which is, I want to support young people who want to do that as well. Yeah. Bring psychiatry back to its roots of really deep connection with other people and also connection with the larger world. Yeah. Do you, in your heart, do you believe that is possible given the sort of like the Given the nature and the structure of how psychology, uh, how psychiatry and how the medical system works, say, to actually rehumanize it on that level? Yes. Oh, but I'm an optimist. I wouldn't be yeah, doing right, right, right. it if I weren't. I think the part of the problem is that medical education is so shot through with fear. 
So students are also they're afraid they won't do as well as their roommate or the person you know sitting <laughs> living across the hall. They worry about what residency they're going to get in. They worry about student debt. They worry about uh, malpractice. They're constantly worried. And for me, one of the beautiful things about medicine was. Aside uh, from being helpful to other people, I know I could always make a living. And they've, they've forgotten and they feel like they're they, – they feel so intimidated and so pushed into these various corners where often they don't feel comfortable. So yes, I think it's a matter of developing uh, an understanding of themselves, uh, a real – a connection with why they went into medicine in the first place right. and helping to build up their courage to challenge the system. What are they going to do? They're not going to shoot you if you disagree with something. I wouldn't do things when I was a resident that I was told. I wouldn't give people shock therapy. I didn't think it was, you know, my experience with it, my reading of the literature. It didn't seem like a good idea. There had to be other ways. Uh, I used very little medication then for the same reasons. My supervisor's were sometimes very angry at me. But so what? I'm not there to please my supervisors. I'm there to take care of my patients in the best possible way. And I was enough in touch with that. And it was a different time, to be yeah. sure. But I think we need to get back in touch with those those values and this sense of ourselves, not just in, in psychiatry or medicine, but everywhere. Otherwise, we're, you know, we're going to destroy ourselves. Yeah. I, I mean, I wonder what the role of the way that you describe um, you sort of saying like, no, I, I'm going to do what I believe is maybe quite right action, regardless of what the, you know, the construct around it is telling me to do. Were you, un I'm curious, were you unusual among your classmates in being that way? Yes, I was, un unusual is a very polite word for me. <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, different or weird uh, among my classmates. My classmates were very smart. And, you know, many of them had published papers in scientific journals in medical school before they even got to medical school. And uh, I was I was an, I was an outlier, but I had a sense of what I want. I was involved in the civil rights movement when I was in medical school. I was involved early on in the anti-war movement. My classmates thought I was just just kind of weird. And I was impatient with some of the strictures of medical school. Now, later on, 25 years later, at my 25th medical school reunion, uh, I, uh, I gave a talk. Some, some classmates gave a talk. And, and I talked about, interestingly enough, I talked about psychological trauma. And uh, the talk was called, very similar to my book in a way, it was called Trauma and Transformation. And I said the first traumatic events in my life were my first year in medical school hmm. when I felt so different and out of place. And what was interesting to me is that a large number of my classmates came up to me afterwards and said, I felt the same way. Oh, no kidding. But I could never have right. observed. They seemed to me like it was all fine to them. But to right. me, it wasn't fine. Wasn't fine the way patients were treated, and the education. Even though professors were brilliant and the students were brilliant, the education felt much too narrow. It wasn't like the imaginative, challenging education that I'd had in college. So I was, you know, in my questioning of it, I felt very different, and my classmates looked at me as if I were different. Yeah, but it's so interesting to find that the twenty-five years later, that maybe part of that was perception. Yes, and exactly. not actual reality. Exactly. 
Yeah. Which is one of the reasons why our, the, one of the things we do at the Center for Mind-Body Medicine is we train medical school faculty to lead mind-body skills groups. Mm. And what happens in these mind-body skills groups, groups of, say, 10 uh, people, and in this case, we're talking about medical school faculty working with medical students, is that the students have an opportunity to really be themselves, to be more vulnerable than they usually right. usually are. And it makes a huge difference in the way they think about medicine, the way they think about themselves, the way they take care of themselves. Uh, they're less stressed out. They do better. They sleep better. They're less anxious, more hopeful about becoming doctors. And uh, they also have more compassion for each other. Mm. So it's it's I'm sort of it's in a way this is sort of circling back right. and bringing what I've learned over all these years back into medical education. Yeah, I mean, it seems like a big piece of that puzzle too. And almost, I wonder if you know. Um, I think there's this weird tension between being willing to be different and and speak your voice and ask the questions and do what you feel is right, and at the same time feeling. Even if you know you're different, in some way feeling safe. And and I, I wonder if part of what was going on with you is that somehow you were able to claim that feeling of safety while maybe others around you weren't. And so that you were willing to sort of like say what was on your mind, whereas it took 25 years later until people could come back to you and say, well, I was different. I wasn't feeling that also, but they just weren't vocalizing it. Um, I'm curious what your 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 lens on the role of safety, social safety, uh, personal hmm. safety is... Awful. I never... I, I don't know that I ever thought of it as safety. Yeah. I, I just thought... Uh, in fact, sometimes I felt quite unsafe. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> but I was just, it was just what I had to do because to have done anything other than what I did I would have felt terrible, would have felt like yeah. a betrayal of myself. So it was a matter of choosing, uh, now that you're getting me to think about it. It was a matter of choosing what felt right to me or doing something that would feel terrible. And then what was the point of doing that? I didn't want to live that way. Even, yeah. even then, I, I think it was much more a sense of being rather than safety, just of being in touch with, with what I needed to do. And if people didn't like it, it wasn't that I was immune from criticism or attacks. If they came, it was it was painful. But I'd rather suffer that pain than the pain of of suppressing myself and of doing something that felt like a violation of either me or of the patients I was working with. That would that would be terrible. Yeah, and, and if you if you were bringing this activist heart into the education and then eventually the practice, that also it's sort of you know. There's almost a, a, a justice, a social justice element to what you're doing as yeah, well. Yeah, exactly. And I, I did, you know, there were there were allies from time yeah. to time that I found people who uh, I, I had a great girlfriend. She was wonderful. I had friends who were uh, outside of medicine who were shared my view of the world. People who were. Uh, I was a musician and political scientists and writers and other people I was connected to. I had my, that may be where, part of where my zone of right. safety came from yeah. I had these other people who were there. And then when I went into therapy, the man I went into therapy with was somebody who, when I would tell him what was going on in medical school, he nodded his head in, in deep understanding because a dozen years before he'd been through the same right. thing. Yeah. I mean... Would would you consider him to be one of your sort of like first allies in the field who really got it? And yeah, this is, this is a man named Robert Coles yeah. who was very well known years ago. It was a 
Well, I, I, I first encountered him in his writings. He was huh. he was a psychiatrist in the Air Force, and he was stationed in New Orleans. And in his spare time, he was working with the black kids who were integrating the schools in New Orleans, late 50s, early 60s. And I started reading what he was writing. And, and so this was also then at that time in that place, the height of like the actually the early part of the civil rights movement. Exactly. Yeah. And I read what he was writing and I said, this is beautiful. What he's doing mm -hmm. as a psychiatrist, helping these kids and, and you know, creating this change that, ha that as far as I was concerned, had to happen. That. That rang a bell for me, and I talked with him about his work. And then when I got in trouble uh, psychologically, uh, I'd taken a year out of medical school. My girlfriend and I had broken up. I wasn't so sure about medical school. I called him up, and he was there for me on the phone. We talked for two hours on the telephone. Mm. I was still in New York then with my year off. He was in Cambridge, and he was there. And he really became very uh, both a model and also an important support for me in those last two years of medical school. Yeah. So to a certain extent, he was the exemplar of what was exactly. possible. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. He was. He he was not only a good therapist, but he was a he he was an example of who I could be. He also got me to laugh at myself, which was very important. I was taking <laughs> for all of very us right? seriously yeah. at times, and you know he he was compassionate, but he also he didn't take me quite so seriously, which was important for me too. Right. What was your first move out of uh, out of school when you when it was time to actually develop your own practice and go? What was the first step out for well, you? Well, I I um, I did medical school, then I did an internship, right. and my internship uh, I went to San Francisco uh, during the summer of love, nineteen sixty seven, because mm. that was the place to be, and I wanted to be you know I wanted to be see what was happening and feel what was happening and be there. And it was great. It was the inter It was at Mount Zion Hospital, and the internship was great. And we were organizing uh, against the war, mm. and going to the Fillmore and dancing, and you know, listening to the Grateful Dead and Jefferson Airplane and the Doors and all those yeah. people. So it was an amazing, an amazing year. Then I came back to New York and I did residency in psychiatry, and worked in the Bronx. And it was it was great. I was really I was able to create a um, a, a psychiatric ward where people could come and did not have to be medicated. And I'd been a student of and had written about R. D. Lang. I don't know if you remember Lang, yep. Lonnie Lang, who was the kind of major figure in psychiatry as a challenger to Man. orthodox psychiatry. And he worked with psychotic people without medication. And and I, I went to spend time with him in London when I was a resident. I wrote a, what wound up being a cover story for The Atlantic about Lang and his work. And then I had an opportunity to be chief resident in psychiatry. So people not only came from the Bronx, but they came from all over the United States because they'd read the article right. in The Atlantic. And so people were showing up. And I had an opportunity to create this community where we were really respecting people who were going through this psychotic experience or very serious depression and they had an opportunity to see this experience as a voyage of discovery a voyage in the hmm. interior a voyage of discovery and we to our best ability created a situation in which they were guided and guarded those are lang's original words as they went through this experience that was very powerful for me as well yeah i would imagine it would be um i'm, I'm curious also um, how much or whether 
your experience being out in San Francisco in 67 and being involved in that community and the music and the celebration and um, how much that then influences what you create in the Bronx and then beyond. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I think about Emil Durkheim's work on collective effervescence and have, you know, the, the sort of a, the culturally therapeutic effect and bonding effect that it has, which effectively was what was going on in the summer of love and how that might have sort of like you, you being a part of that, not just witnessing yeah. it, but being in it then changes the way that you actually I, practice. I, I, I like that phrase. And I also, um, you know, I, I appreciate what you're saying. Yes. I wanted to live in a world which was just and celebratory. Yeah. And I wanted to make that possible for myself, but for everyone I worked with. And so from the beginning, there was a sense of wanting to build community, wanting to create a world. Because I understood that it's not just about treating individuals as a psychiatrist or as a doctor. It's also about creating a world in which people can become who they're meant to be. And that's been that's been my theme ever since, and I'm, I'm sure all that early experience civil during in the civil rights movement, uh, in the Haight Ashbury, uh, running a psychiatric ward as a kind of true healing community, all of that has influenced everything I've done ever since, and helped to shape the work I do now with population wide trauma. Yeah. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Good Life Project is sponsored by NetSuite. So I remember when our businesses were just starting to really scale. It was amazing and also added complexity and stress. And the things that I used to do in hours were taking days, too many spreadsheets, too many systems, no single source of truth. That sounds familiar. You should know these numbers. 37,000. 25 and 1. 37,000 businesses have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. And right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash goodlife. That's netsuite.com slash goodlife to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash goodlife. 
Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. So you would have been in the Bronx then, is that, are we in the 80s yet or the late 70s? This was uh, late 60s. Late 60s. Late 60s. I finished my residency there in 71. Yeah. Okay. So then Center for Mind, Body, Medicine doesn't start until 91. Right. What did I do in between? Yeah, what's the middle? I, was, I, I went to the uh, National Institute of Mental Health. Okay. For, I was there for 11 years. At that point uh, in the late 60s, early 70s, all doctors were subject to the draft. There was mm. something called the Berry Plan. And I knew I wasn't going to go in the military. I wasn't going to support the war in Vietnam. I wasn't going to say I was crazy. You could argue about whether I was crazy or not, but I was certainly wasn't going to try to get out. I didn't have a physical disability. I, w I wasn't going to say I was gay because I wasn't gay, and I wasn't going to go to Canada because this is my country. So I had two choices. Uh, one was to go in, if I could, to go in the public health service and to serve my country that way. The other was to go to jail. And I was fortunate enough to be accepted in the public health service. I think I was fortunate enough. Maybe it would have been better if I'd gone to jail. I'm not I, honestly. I'm, I'm, I'm not. Real, I'm not sure about that. But what happened is I got accepted in the public health service, and uh, I was able to work with, really create my own job. And and the job was working with young people uh, on the street, homeless and runaway kids, mm. and working with them initially on the street, working with the counselors who were working with them. And then over time, as I continued to do this work, creating a national program for runaway and homeless kids based on the principles that these kids are not crazy. They were often regarded as crazy and locked up in mental hospitals, which was quite inappropriate. And they weren't criminals. Running away was a crime in most states or being homeless was a crime. So really challenging those accepted definitions along with the counselors who were working with runaways, many of whom were seminarians and civil mm -hmm. rights workers and hippies who were just kind of coming together to do something worthwhile. And that's where I started. So for a number of years, I worked uh, with these kids and their counselors and really, again, creating communities where these kids could find themselves and figure out who, who they were and what they were supposed to be doing. At the same time, Within a couple of years of doing that, and this was such a such a grace, such a blessing for me, I had this real freedom as this as a researcher at the National Institute of Mental yes. Health. Uh, I wanted to explore all of these other forms of healing that I was starting to hear about, to practice. I'd gotten interested in Chinese medicine. Uh, this is the late 60s. I'd become interested in meditation, interested in nutrition. 
And I was able to make the exploration of these areas uh, an important part of my job at the National Institute of Mental Health, mm. which was fantastic. And so I worked with a whole variety, number of teachers and work with people who are doing the most interesting and exciting work in the field and eventually met many of them and uh, was given the opportunity by, by President Carter to head up a study and Rosalind Carter to head up a study on alternative mental health services. I proposed it to them uh, for the President's Commission on Mental Health. And they said yes, and so that's what I did. I spent several years going around the country, meeting all as many of the leaders in the, these various fields as I could, understanding what research was done, writing about it, and becoming a, a kind of organizer yeah. uh, as well as a, a you know a, a, a researcher and documenter. Yeah, during that window of time, I'm curious. Were there big surprises? I mean, we're the, entering that process and then spending a number of years in it. You know, I'm sure we all go into something like that with certain beliefs or expectations. Um, but then when you're in it, you know, data replaces assumption. While you're in that sort of season, I'm curious, what were the big things that you became aware of that maybe weren't expected or, or shifted you in a, in a meaningful way? Well, er, early on in, in that work, uh, I was working at a, uh, there was then a laboratory in community mental health, no longer exists. But I became aware that virtually every professional in that facility had some kind of significant stress-related disorder. <laughs> so I thought, this is, something's going on here that shouldn't be going on. And what I did is I brought them together in a group the same kind of theme, to talk about what's going on, yeah. help them deal with their stress, help them deal, help all of us deal with the conditions that were contributing to the stress. And so this partly was surprising the level of stress-related illness that was there. The other thing that was, I suppose, a bit surprising, but I shouldn't have been surprised, is that my boss didn't like it. She didn't like that I was organizing. <laughs> and so she... Um, it's a threat to the existing structures. I exactly. Mean, yeah. So I had... A, it was a two-year commitment that I had. They they kept me on for another year because everybody liked the work I was doing. I was publishing. Yeah. It was important work. It was a new model for working with runaway and homeless kids. But they didn't like the organizing that I was doing. So I had to fight to stay at NIMH. And I, I, I thought, I'll be there for two years. I'll come back to New York. I'll work in the Bronx. Right, I'll, right. You know, and, but I no, I, I, I didn't like the idea of being pushed out. And I didn't like the idea of not being able to continue this work that was very important to me. So I had to fight. And this was a real major fight with the NIMH bureaucracy. And I had opponents and I had champions. And so this was, it was, I, I wasn't, I shouldn't have been too surprised because I'd certainly had challenges throughout medical school and residency, but this was a whole other level, and and, and I had to ask for help from people to um, you know to to find champions and to find people who really wanted to keep me there in spite of my tendency to organize wherever I went. Yeah, I mean, what a um, challenging and fertile place to be <laughs> in in that moment. Did you? I'm curious. Did you, and to this day, do you find it easy or difficult to be in a place where you need to ask others to step in and help? Ah, oh, that's a good question. 
I'm doing that now with yeah. with the transformation with this book. I'm asking you know friends. I'm asking people, some of whom I don't know so well, like you. I'm saying I've written this book that I think is really important. Could mm. you help me? So it's an interesting lesson. Uh, in I mean, I'm, I'm doing. I'm promoting my book, I'm promoting myself, but it's also a very interesting lesson in humility. Mm. And so it continues uh, as a challenge. So it's interesting that you picked up on that. It is a bit of a challenge to ask for help, and it's good for me to ask for help. It's not only good for the transformation, it's good for my transformation to be in that position of saying to other people, because I've tended often to be very much on my own and sort of taking care of things and making things happen. And I've found it good, and I've been very touched by people's responses that people have said, you know, sure, I'll help. Yeah, I I mean, I'm always fascinated. It's sort of, I think, an ongoing question of mine. And I I explore this within myself, but also with so many others who I've been fortunate to sit down with. When when you have an individual who is bright and, and powerful in a lot of ways and driven and also very confident and competent, in their own capabilities and and abilities to to get things done. Um, When you hit that place where there's just so much complexity or so much resistance or adversity that, you know, there's no way to do it alone. And uh, it's such, it's so interesting to see how people grapple with that and move through it and open to it or not and how that affects this bigger thing that they they really want to see happen. Well, you know that the idea that we could do it alone seems a little dopey. Yeah, when you right. When you zoom the lens out like that, big right, world. right. And and also, I mean, this is very much this whole you know rugged individualist notion hmm. that we have. That's you know, particularly peculiar to Americans, I think, that we can and should be doing it on our own if we're really strong, if we're really good at something. And some of that's necessary, I suppose. Some of that's what makes for the dynamism that we have as individuals and that's there uh, in America. But I think some of it's very limiting and and also very dangerous. And so for me, uh, the, the sense of depending, not just being the leader of an organization and of a community, which I have been, but really depending on other people is really good for me. And it helps me to open myself in many ways to other people and I become closer to them. And I'm, I'm finding that as I'm, as I'm asking people for help with the transformation that all those people, our communications are shifting somewhat. Mm. There's a, a little more sweetness and there's more vulnerability in the way yeah. I approach them and they're more tender towards me as well instead of being, you know, okay, I'll do this or in a kind of matter of fact way or, or being just, uh, oh, of course I'll do this for you. No, it's more more mutual and it's really nice yeah no i I, i've seen that as well you know the the notion of being a bit more vulnerable uh of progressive revelation um blending those two it's just it's hard i think for a lot of people who feel very self-reliant and competent and and i shouldn't you know quotes shouldn't need help but when you do it's just it's it's doesn't just change how you feel it changes the social dynamic of those around you in a really powerful way that that I think uh, not just enables you to do the thing you're here to do, but changes your experience of the relationships you have along the way. Exactly, and it creates it helps to create whole new structures hmm. or reform the structure 
that um, that you're in. So, for example, you know, I started the Center for Mind Body Medicine in '91, as you right. mentioned, and for a long time I was leading all the trainings. But now we have so many more places that we're working. I can't do it. And I was just at a training in Northern California in Shasta County, where we're working after the wildfires. The whole community's been deeply traumatized, Man. and some of you know some towns were pretty much wiped out. And, and of course, there's all the older issues that are still there, issues of poverty and uh, issues of abuse and all these other you know, distresses in the community that are coming out. And I, I w was able just to be there for the first day or part of the first day because I had to come back here. And it was so interesting turning over the whole program to other people who were leaders from the, our faculty. And it was good. I mean, and, and it turned out to be very sweet. I had some, oh, how are they going to do? And uh, is it okay? And I'm sure they're going to do great. And there was such a feeling of warmth between us with the turnover, kind of gratitude from them and gratitude from me that they yeah. were going to do it. Yeah. I mean, when, when you hold the work so tightly, well, sure, maybe you know that it's going to get done the way that you have in your mind it needs to be done. But at the same time, you know, we become the primary constraint in scale and impact. Um, what happens in 91 or, or in the years leading up to 91 that makes, that leads to the launch of the Center for Mind, Mind and Medicine? Well, it, during, uh, I left National Institute of Mental Health in 1982. Okay. I, I could no longer have the freedom. It was the Reagan administration. I no longer had the freedom to create new programs, to investigate new opportunities that I'd had before. So I went into private practice, and I was doing uh, practice. I, I, I do acupuncture and herbalism, work with nutrition and manipulation, the way osteopaths or chiropractors do. And So all take, the things your typical psychiatrist would do. Not exactly typical <laughs> psychiatric right. practice. Uh, and I was working a lot with people with all different kinds of chronic physical as well as psychological issues. And I was writing. I was writing for the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, and uh, it was it was not it was it was good, but I began to feel that I needed to do something more. That the understanding I had of the importance of bringing self awareness, self care, and group support into the center of all healthcare, the training of all health professionals, and the education of our children that that was a mission that I had, and. I, I couldn't do that in a private practice. I couldn't. Even, I was a clinical professor at Georgetown, uh, so I was doing some teaching, but that wasn't. I couldn't really do it there either. And I wanted to have a larger effect. I'd stayed in Washington after I left NIMH because I wanted to support people who were doing work that seemed meaningful to me. People from the, both people within the government, people in Congress, people in the bureaucracies, as well as people who were. You know, doing community-based uh, organizations, people who are advocating for uh, civil rights or women's rights or health care. I wanted to support them. Uh, so I was staying in Washington, and, and I discovered that there was no place that I could really make this um, – make this vision of self-care being central to all health care a reality. I couldn't do it at Georgetown. They're happy to have me teach there, but they, they, they were really significant limitations. And I, I looked at a couple of other possibilities, and, and it just didn't work. So I said, well, I'm going to have to start my own organization. 
mm. because I do want to have this effect. And, and I also then understood too that I wanted to create a healing community and a community of healers. I wanted to bring people together for this effort. And I would decided the best way to make this much larger change was to create an organization that could support people in all of these established organizations, whether within the government or in medical schools or hospitals or education systems. And so I, I would work from the outside and teach and educate and train those people in what I was learning. So I, ha I really had to do it. It was part of my growth and development and yeah. it was my, my mission, if you will. And I started with uh, no money and no paid staff. And we had, had about 25 volunteers who were interested in you know, what I was doing and wanted to be part of it. And, you know, doctors, nurses, mental health professionals, teachers, and one professional gambler, which I took <laughs> as a very good omen. And he was just... who, who was probably also an expert in human psychology and yes, behavior exactly. in a lot of ways, right? He was interesting. He was most interested in attachment theory, how children <laughs> and, uh, and their parents bond. Right. And I'm guessing maybe multiple motivations there. Yes. That's so we, we started that way and began, uh, created a curriculum in mind-body medicine, which is still the one that we're using. And, and in many ways, one of, many of the elements of that original curriculum from almost 30 years ago are there in the transformation, refined over the years and uh, expanded in many, many ways. So it's there. We began working locally initially with uh, Latino high school students. I had a friend who ran the Latin American Youth Center, and we developed a program in mind-body medicine which brought together Latino high school students who were interested in the health professions and Georgetown medical students who wanted to mentor the high school students. We brought them together in a program of mind-body medicine. And we did all kinds of things together. The medical students took the high school students into the dissecting rooms and they showed them what an autopsy was like and they helped them apply to colleges. And the, we, we hung out in the Latino neighborhood and got to know what's going on there. It was a, it was a lovely program. We started locally. Uh, it was going very well. We were also working with other populations, working with people who were in significant need, people who had cancer and HIV. This is before the effective right. drugs for AIDS. Uh, working with uh, the people with um, other people with chronic illnesses, working with these inner city kids, also working with stressed out professionals, which are just about everybody in Washington who's in a profession. They're all extremely stressed out. Uh, with Georgetown medical students, bringing this model to them. And I was beginning to lead groups, mind-body skills groups for medical students. And also I was seeing a lot of people in my practice who'd been tortured in other countries mm. and uh, teaching them this model as well. So the, we began locally. There was enough interest. So we trained a whole, we trained 30 people locally to do this work. That went well. Next step was to train people nationally. I always had the sense that my work was education, fundamentally. Mm. And then we started training people nationally. And we had 120 people come to our first training from all wow. over the country. And they learned our model. And then they began to bring it back to hospitals, clinics, medical schools, community-based organizations, school systems. And then that was going well. So by 1996... I began to wonder if this same approach, these, using these same techniques of 
different forms of meditation and guided imagery and self-expression in words and drawings and movement, if, if that same approach could be used in some of the most troubled parts of the planet? It was a question I had in my mind. So I started going. And a colleague and I went first to Mozambique hmm. and spent some time with former child soldiers. So it would have been late 90s then? 96. Or, right. Yeah. Which was a devastating time there. Yeah. Like, you know, they, they'd had a, uh, a war of independence yeah. and they had a civil war. And they were, these kids, 12, 13 years old, had been forced to kill their parents and then killed lots of other people. And we started, we went had a brief visit there and we were teaching the kids these same techniques. What, what, I'm, I mean, what was that like for you? Like the first time, you know, you, you've built the center, you're doing well, you're expanding in the U.S., you're seeing a lot of difficult circumstances, but still within sort of the, the confines of a relatively modern functioning society. The very first time you drop into Mozambique, I'm just curious personally what that moment, what that experience Seeing was like. the kids was extraordinarily painful because the kids, in order to do what they had done, they had to kill most of themselves as well. They had to shut down in so many ways. So these kids were just frozen. We talk about fight or flight and freeze response. These kids were, you see it in their bodies, they were so tight. Eyes, they were really fairly blank they were so you could they're kind of vibrating with with tension and fear and and anger and confusion so it was painful to be in their presence and required me and susan lord who was with me using all of our self-care skills to just be able to relax with them so we had to relax ourselves which of course is the fundamental uh, principle of our work you can't teach other people how to take care of themselves unless you're no unless you're doing it yourself so we had to do it and sit with them and i had no idea really whether they would be interested in anything yeah. that we had to offer but it, it turned out, we didn't spend a lot of time with them, but it turned out that they appreciated being able to breathe deeply. They could feel a little bit more relaxed. They were then a little bit more able to talk about what had happened to them, what they'd done to other people. We got them up moving their bodies, and at first they're so stiff. But then they could also begin to relax and shake off some of that terrible frozen tension that they had. So it was hard at first. It was really, I, I went with the question. The question is, is this approach that's working well in the United States, can it be useful? And the answer I got back from my experience with them was yes. And then we spent some time with people who had family members killed during apartheid. And it was the same answer. Having a place where you could feel safe, where you could share what, was, what had been going on with you and where you could learn some techniques to deal with the disordered physiology and the troubled psychology and difficulty interacting with other people, that, that those people, those, those, those they're primarily women who'd experienced those losses in South Africa, that it could make a difference to them. So I said, okay, this can make a difference. And then I said, but... I think I feel too comfortable in Africa. <laughs> Let me go to Bosnia. The wars, the war had just ended. 200,000 people had been killed. Uh, I didn't really want to go to Bosnia at first. The climate's not very hospitable. I would never speak the language. I thought 
that they'd been fighting each other for hundreds of years. But it was where um, it felt like where it was important for us to be. This was a place where we could potentially demonstrate the effectiveness where people would pay attention and where it was a, a, a bigger challenge in a way. And somebody had asked me about going, a, a woman I knew who uh, was actually a psychic had said, would you like to go to Bosnia? And my first response said, no. And then I went to Mozambique and South Africa. I came back. I said, okay, let's go to Bosnia. And so we went to Bosnia and then began to work there. And had, we had some connections with uh, uh, health and men, leaders in health and uh, public health. It started with them. Uh, began to work with the Monsignor of the Catholic Church, with the president of the Islamic University, started to do some training. And it, it was going well, except it was also clear that this was now a year after the war, a little more than a year after the war was over, that the whole society was traumatized. Every, I mean, you just walk the streets. First of all, they uh, on the streets in Sarajevo, where people were shot by snipers, Serbian snipers shooting down at the Muslims and Croats in Sarajevo, where they died in the street, they painted the streets red. So there were all these splotches of red to signify the blood that people had shed when they'd been assassinated, when they'd been shot by snipers. But the whole city, everybody's smoking all the time, drinking all the time, very tense. So when the war in Kosovo started in 98... Uh, we knew we had to be there right at the beginning and had to work, that that was the time to work. If you wait till after the war is over, all these patterns that come with trauma, the anxiety, the irritation, the difficulty focusing, difficulty sleeping, the withdrawal from other people, the alcohol consumption, the alcoholism, the abuse of women and children, all of those patterns had become fixed. So the time to work was as soon as possible. And so within a month or two after the war in Kosovo started, uh, Susan and I went to Kosovo and began to work with people who'd been bombed and burned out of their homes, mostly women, children, and older people, and also with the uh, the soldiers from the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe who were there to monitor and come between the warring uh, Albanian revolutionaries and the Serbs who were being rebelled against. So we, that's how we started. We started in Kosovo during the war. And we could see this is the time to start. And we were found that what we had to teach was very helpful to the people who were driven out of their homes and also helpful to the military who were trying to keep the peace. Yeah. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. 
This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. You've described some of the patterns that get laid down fairly quickly through the process of trauma. What, how, what is trauma or, or in, in your language? What is your lens on what this thing, trauma, actually is? Well, trauma is a Greek word. It means injury. Injury to the body, to the mind, to the spirit. And all of us are going to suffer trauma in our lives, if not early because of discrimination or poverty or abusive or neglectful family. Then as adults, we're likely to, when we have a breakup of an important relationship or a major disappointment at work or um, an illness in the family, a parent's death, a child's illness. And then if not then, Toward the end of our life, the Buddhists know this very well. Is right. It's gonna. We're gonna become frail. We're gonna have all the, you know, the disability of of old age, and we're gonna have to face our own death. Trauma is a part of life, and that's what I have understood. So for me, you know, my early trauma. I did have early trauma with my very difficult family, and I had some trauma. Some of that was reawakened in medical school and reawakened when I had the breakup with my girlfriend. And this is part of living. We all experience trauma. And so, yes, some of it is more dramatic. Some of the people I've worked with who've had 20 members of their families murdered, of course, that's huge. But but it's not about comparing one trauma with another. It's about becoming aware of those forces and factors and events in our lives that throw us into chaos, that make us shut down. So those are the consequences of trauma, and we know it. We know it in our minds, in our bodies, when we're shut down, when we want to hide under the uh, under the bed, <laughs> when we withdraw from other people, when we can't sleep or can't concentrate. You can bet we've been traumatized. Yeah. And trauma is really, I mean, I think one of the 
difficulties with psychiatry is it's come away from its roots and has forgotten that late 19th century Freud and Breuer, they were talking about this like the founders of modern psychiatry were looking at the effects of early trauma on later life. And now we're so focused on these diagnostic entities and treating the symptoms that we've forgotten the role of trauma in, in the difficulties we experience later on. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting to hear you describe trauma in that way because rather than this big capital T that we must at all costs do everything we can to avoid, framing it as it's, it's something that we all will experience on some level at some point, potentially multiple points throughout our lives, it, it, gives, you, it gives you a different lens on, on how to personally frame it, I think. And also your point about comparison, I think, is fascinating. Because I, I wonder if people think about or look at some of the scenarios that you've described, like war-torn areas, people who have been through the most horrific things, and say to themselves, well, that's trauma, but, you know, I'm just struggling at work or I just broke up with this person or I just have whatever it is. Like, okay, so I'm not really worthy of labeling this trauma and therefore not really charged with doing something about it also. You're, you're absolutely right. That's that's a very pervasive notion. I mean, we we are in some ways a, a society that's you know it's kind of self indulgent and over, perhaps overly preoccupied with the sort of individual self. But on the other hand, there is this deep shame, this deep sense that we are not worthy. That those things that we compare ourselves to other people. You know, it, what's interesting to me is that those other people who've suffered those terrible traumas. That you know they've lost all those family members, they've lost their homes. They don't feel the same way. Hmm. I mean, they don't feel like just because you're talking about on quote only a breakup with a partner, they don't see that as so minor. They have a in general, they have a, a more generous, broader understanding of the nature of trauma because we often have uh, people in the same group, some of whom have suffered horribly from war or other circumstances, others of whom have suffered the ordinary trauma of our lives. And very quickly, people see the commonalities among among them. They see that mm. in the words of a famous uh, psychiatrist, Harry Stack Sullivan, we are more simply human than otherwise. All of us. We're all in this together. And and we need to appreciate that. Not to we don't need to exaggerate. And comparisons are almost always pretty deadly. I mean, either we feel better than somebody, right. which is not too pleasant to be around, or we feel worse, which is not pleasant for us. We're just here. We're all in this together. We're all gonna go through trauma. And that's the understanding that I'm conveying in the transformation. That's what we bring to people in the groups. And and people can, after a while, they oh, they can relax and they, and they let go of some of that comparison. Yeah, I, I think it's just such an important thing to focus on and because it, it's almost like it gives you permission to feel what you're feeling. Yes. And say, oh, oh, okay, like I, it doesn't matter what anyone else has been through. It doesn't matter in this moment in my life, in my body, in my mind, things suck. <laughs> you know, I'm feeling this. I'm feeling constricted. I'm feeling tight. I'm feeling ill, whatever it may be. And um, I, I guess it really doesn't even matter if you label it trauma but just acknowledging the basket of what you're experiencing and knowing that 
um, you don't have to compare it to anybody else to make the decision about whether you want to do something to try and feel differently. Exactly. And and, and the first thing is becoming, for many people, is becoming aware huh, tell me of more. the trauma because we're not aware. We go around, we think it's normal to sleep five hours and wake up three times or not be able to focus. No, that's not. Something's going on. And often that something has to do with some traumatic events. And the problem is not our immediate response to trauma, fight or flight response to, you know, to struggle against something that's overwhelming or difficult for us to deal with. The problem is that it continues long after the event is over or we're staying in situations that continue to produce that right. response, that continue to traumatize us. Relationships are an obvious example, abusive relationships. We, we, we don't want to wake up to the fact that this relationship is really damaging us seriously, psychologically and physiologically. So the first thing is to take a little time, take some deep breaths and begin to think about what is going on, what is actually happening to me now. And then, then there's the opportunity to make a decision to have a, and to say, okay, do I want to do something about it? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm glad you brought up this, the notion of awareness. Um, because I do agree. I feel that we are so disconnected from our sensation, from what we're actually feeling. And maybe maybe because we're so distracted by other things that we're just not present and aware, or maybe we're intentionally numbing ourselves to a certain extent because facing it would require us to either acknowledge the fact that we're choosing not to do anything about it or do something about it, which I think a lot of us would be would perceive as being disruptive to our lives, maybe more so than what we're actually feeling. Ab absolutely. You're, you're right. We, 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 we are busy. We, we don't want to look at it. We have a hard time looking at it and we want to move ahead. The show must go on. And you see, I mean, see this most obviously, we, uh, I do a lot of work with, with military people, active duty military and veterans and veterans families. Everybody thinks we got to keep moving ahead, but it's not just veterans. It's not just military. It's there in the health professions. It's there in teachers. It's there in business people. It's there so widely, this, this notion that we, that we, the, the notion that we shouldn't deal with our emotions, that we shouldn't be paying attention. They're only emotions. Those are only our feelings. Uh, who am I to uh, talk about trauma that I've experienced? And we need to really kind of, this isn't the word, but re-honor ourselves, to honor ourselves once again, or perhaps for the first time, and pay attention to those feelings and pay attention to what's actually going on. And then once we start realizing what's happening, we are faced with a decision. Do we want to do something about it or not? It's still our decision, but it's important to have that decision. Yeah, but at least owning the circumstance that brings you to a point where you realize there's a decision to be made, I think in some way, even that's progress. <laughs> Exactly. And that, you know, meditation is central to, to what I'm teaching. Yeah. It's sort of really the first step in, in the transformation. The first step, I suppose, is that I make clear is trauma comes to all of us. Right. And it doesn't mean a life sentence to being miserable. There are things we can do about it. And the first thing is to learn how to get into that relaxed state where you actually can become aware of what's going on. Mm. Because... Ordinarily, most of us are so busy making sure the show goes on that we're not aware of what's happening. So it's really important to and fundamental, foundational to teach people just to relax, to breathe slowly and deeply, 
to notice what's happening, and I'm sure familiar to you. You're, I have a feeling you're a Buddhist practitioner, so the, the beads. I on see, the I'm looking at the, the beads, on, so yeah. It's for, this is first principle. This is this is the beginning of waking up. Is taking a little time to relax and pay attention. It's very funny working with medical students. They say, "I, I can't do it. I have no time. I have to do this." When they start. We teach slow, deep, soft belly breathing, breathing mm. in through the nose and out through the mouth with the belly soft and relaxed. It's a concentrative meditation that also encourages mindfulness. And they do it for 10 minutes and they're starting to notice, oh, I'm studying better. I'm sleeping a little better. I'm not so irritable with my roommate. Maybe it's worth taking the 10 no. minutes, but people have to make up their mind, everyone has to decide, or are you willing to take a little bit of time to take care of yourself? Yeah, so important. Um, and, and your, you know, your approach of, of integrating a lot of different modalities um, to sort of almost rewire neurally, physiologically, um, psychologically, the way that we experience stress and trauma is, I, I think... It, it's so sensible. Um, I also, what I think is fascinating about it is it is not about you looking for the person who's going to fix you. It's about what can I do to have a sense of agency to get myself as good as I can get. Maybe I still need help. Maybe I still need medication. Maybe I still need these other things. But it's a, it is about starting with you. Exactly. Exactly, and it's and it's and it's up to each person. And one of the reasons that I uh, teach so many techniques in the transformation is because some people like one, some like another. Yeah. I think we, you know, this is part of our mentality. This is this is part of the comparison that we were talking about right. before. The tendency to compare. No, you may not like this particular meditation. You may not like this particular guided imagery. Don't worry about it. There are many ways for you to understand and help yourself, many different forms in which you can express yourself, many parts of your life that can be healing. Maybe for you, the most important thing is going into nature and spending time there. That's your primary meditation. That's your primary healing avenue. For somebody else, it may be doing drawings. For somebody else, it may be one of the active expressive meditations that, that I teach, the shaking and dancing. Everybody's different. And the idea, my idea of working with people, whether I'm working with them in print, in a book, or in person, is it's an experiment. See what happens. We have this notion, and I don't know where we got it, that experiments are supposed to come out a particular way. No. Why do the experiment if you know if you know how it's going right. to come out? The idea is to do the experiment. Use some of use these techniques. See what happens. Check out for yourself. What what I what I do is I provide an understanding, scientific understanding of how these different techniques work in our mind, work on our body. I provide the research. I give them inspiring examples. But ultimately, it's up to each person what works for you and uh, what doesn't work for you. Yeah, it's such a powerful reframe of the idea of viewing action taking as a series of experiments to see what's actually going to work for you rather than trying on a one-size-fits-all prescription, which should work for everybody because it's been proven in the data to work for a lot of people, but then you fail at it and you think you're a failure and there's there's no option for you rather than saying, okay, so my primary metric going into this is not cure, it's learning. 
Like the primary objective yes. is, is will this work? And then um, if it doesn't, well, okay. Like it would have been nice if it did, <laughs> but knowing that there are, okay, so there are a dozen other things that are now the next series of experiments and something will. Um, and I, my sense is it gives you this sense of forgiveness and willingness to continue to explore Yes, you know, the, sort of a longer path. And you're mentioning forgiveness is really important piece yeah. as well, because the 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 first place where forgiveness is most important is not on that terrible person who did X, Y, or Z. To you. It's forgiving yourself, yeah. having a little compassion for yourself as you start to take care of yourself, and forgiving yourself if you don't like X kind of meditation or X kind of guided imagery that somebody else thinks is wonderful. So having that compassion and then out of that, it becomes a lot easier to forgive others and to ask them to forgive us. I, and I don't, in, in, in the transformation, I don't talk about forgiveness till way on in the book because you got to get calm enough and present enough and you've got to do some experiments with yourself before you're in a place where you want to really deal with forgiveness. Yeah, it, it occurs to me too that, you know, as constructive as this lens of let me run a series of experiments to figure out the, the blend of things that will work for me is when you are in a, in a place of feeling the, the embodied effect of trauma and very likely some level of anxiety at the same time, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it seems like there would also be a tension that I can understand because you just want to be out of that feeling. And the idea of not being able to take a pill or just doing one thing that works, but actually, oh, let me take a longer-term lens. There are a series of things I can do. It, it's, <laughs> it can't be the fun answer like that you just want. I think we're all just in search of, like, give me the thing or tell me the thing that's going to make me feel better now. Yeah. But, you know, one of the things, I, I, and I to- completely understand that. Yeah. Uh, one of the things about this, this method, though, is that many of the techniques will give you at least a taste of that yeah. right away. I was just doing this workshop in Northern California in Shasta, this county that was you know, terribly right. burnt out by the wildfires. And there, I don't know, there may be a hundred people in this training program that we're doing. And I got everybody up first morning, got everybody up shaking and dancing. And a number of people said, Oh, I feel more relaxed. I feel more energized. I was feeling so wound up, so terrible before. They see the difference right away. It may not be gone completely. I think the the difference or the distinction between the differences, if you will, of taking a pill and doing shaking and dancing is you're doing the shaking and dancing. Mm. Somebody else is handing you the pill. Right. And so it requires a little effort, but the reward is so much greater because it's not only the physiological relaxation that you get from the technique, it's the sense, I can make a difference. You used the word agency before. I can do something for myself. And this is the beginning. This is the beginning of the end of the despair, of the hopelessness and helplessness that we so often feel when we've been traumatized. Hopelessness and helplessness are the hallmarks of depression. Uh, They're there with people who are anxious. They're there with chronic illness of pretty much every kind. So once you start to have a sense that I can do something to help myself, everything can start to turn around. So you do get some immediate gratification. Yeah. No, definitely. Um, The one other thing I want to to touch on with you and ask about is this notion of 
not just healing as an individual in isolation, but in community and the role of that, the importance of it, how it changes things. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Well, you know, in, in I'm writing a self-care book, so I'm writing a book for people to read, but I also make the suggestion several times, share what you're learning with other people. Do it with somebody else. Do these techniques with other people and share what you're learning, what your experiences are, what's coming up for you with, with somebody else. One of the crucial things in healing and dealing with trauma of any kind, and, and pretty much everybody recognizes this, is what the social psychologists call social support, which means other people. <laughs> That's a fancy name. Human for, beings. <laughs> you, yeah, you and me. Right. Or, or in the, and it makes such a difference. Uh, when you're going through a difficult time to have somebody you can share some piece of what's happening with. And what you discover likely is they've had something very similar. We're all human. We've all been through these things. I started to learn this when I was in medical school, when I started opening up really for the first time to other people my age. And I'd talk about some of the issues that were challenging me. And at first they were shocked. Oh, you seem so cool, like you have it all together. Well, I don't. And they would say, well, as a matter of fact, neither do I. <laughs> and here's what's happening with me. And and I've seen this. This is So it's great to be able to share with other people. Uh, at the Center for Mind-Body Medicine, our model is uh, small groups are really the best way to learn self-care. It's great. You can learn all the techniques from the transformation from the book, but it's wonderful to be in a group. There's a sense of uh, we're in it together, a kind of energetic sense to uh, that we're, you know, we're here. There are people, other people in this with me. I'm not by myself. And then there's the amazing discovery uh, that other people are not exactly who you thought they were and that all the preconceptions and prejudices you had when you first sat down with them, you know, a few groups later, you've sat with them for a few hours. Oh, you're really not like that. So there's a sense of not only of feeling supported and learning from each other, there's a sense of moving through prejudices, getting over your projections onto other people, and then also a sense of your experience being useful to other people. Because as you talk about, oh, I did the soft belly breathing and it was hard for me because I had all these thoughts come to me and somebody else who's in the group said, oh, I had a lot of thoughts come to me. I thought I was the only one who had these thoughts that kept coming. So you're not only receiving help, you're not only creating a, a community, but you're also being of use to other people that your struggles are actually illuminating uh, to others. Yeah. No, I think it's so important. Um, years ago, I taught yoga and, um, and we opened our yoga center eight weeks after 9-11 in Hell's Kitchen in New York City. And, you know, what, what started as, you know, what I thought would be a celebration and community and joy um, turned into something profoundly different. And, you know, we were also, our location was, was two avenues away from the pier where many of the, the first responders and the aid workers were staging. And we would just send people down and just say, come. And, you know, people were just wandering around the city, talk about mass trauma, not knowing what to do. And, and we just kind of opened our doors and said, like, do yoga, sit, meditate, cry, whatever you need to do. Just this is a place just for people to be with each other and breathe and feel, you know, like for this particular season. And what I witnessed there, 
you know, in the months following was just stunning. Sure, people were doing, you know, like, quote, asana, the physical yoga practice. But what I realized was that was such a smaller part of what was happening between people in a room over this, you know, like, 90-minute window of time, there was something very different that was unfolding. There was a, a deepening, an opening. There was a, a relationship, and there was a, a sense of slow but noticeable healing. That's great. Well, you were able to create that safe space, and you were willing to invite people to share themselves. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen in most yoga studios. Mm -hmm. Some it does. But too often, once again, that whole show must go on. We got to do all these asanas. We yeah, it, it has become very performative, I think, in a lot of as ways. As opposed to allowing people to relax in the postures and seeing what happens. No. And then giving them a time to share. I don't know how many yoga classes do afterwards. What what happened? What came up? Anything you'd like to share? One of the, we, we train a, a number of yoga teachers in our Center for Mind-Body Medicine programs. And many of them bring the attitude and the approach that you had naturally in this crisis that you brought to your students, they, they come through our program and they, they learn how to do that with other people. Mm -hmm. and, they, and their classes are very, very different yeah. afterwards because they're giving that space for people to share. It's a beautiful, that coming together. And there's so little of it that happens in our society here in the United States in, in this. Yeah, and, and I feel like it's needed more than ever now, you know, here and around the world. <laughs> yes, and not just, to, you know, not just to, you know, to complain, not just to yell and scream. A little of that's fine, but what's actually going on inside you? Right. Not just your opinion, but who are you? What's happening to you? We need, all need that space. One of the people I write about uh, as a woman who's become one of our faculty members, was horribly abused in her childhood and uh, you know, raped by her father and physically abused. And She had a, went through a number of therapies. And one of the things she said that was most important about her work with us, she said, nobody tried to fix me. It was mm. great learning all these techniques. It was wonderful being in a group, but I'd been in groups before, but this is the first group where nobody tried to fix me, where they just allowed me to make my own discoveries and share what I needed to share. I didn't feel like there was something wrong with me. Oh, up until then, even with you know, good therapies and supportive groups, I still kept feeling like there's something wrong with me. And the whole idea is we're all here, we're all human, and we're all... You know, we're all trying to find greater balance and to live our lives in a more fulfilling way. And we've all had difficulties along the way. And we need to create places where we can share that experience. Yeah, that's powerful. So as we start to come full circle in, in this container of the Good Life Project, sort of the, you know, exploring this central question of what it means to live a good life, when I offer out that phrase, to live a good life, what comes up? Ah, to live a good life. I would say to enjoy every minute of it is the most important thing. To appreciate and celebrate each moment. To me, when I'm doing that, I feel like I'm living a good life. And that in doing that, I'm able to respond to the person who's there in front of me, to open my heart to that person. I'm able to appreciate all the gifts that I've been given, the fact that I've been given a body to live, the fact that I can still breathe the air. <laughs> and it also um, puts me in touch with what I need to do. 
with what else I may need to do. If I'm really appreciating each moment, then I'm also aware of the pain and the suffering and the injustice that's there in the world. And I can find a way. I'm informed about it continually and I'm schooled in how to respond to it by my interactions with people, by my interactions with the environment. So I really focus on just helping people, you know, enjoy and live in the moment and celebrate those moments, whether it's eating or walking or having a conversation or seeing a patient. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, if you've ever asked yourself, what should I do with my life? We have created a really cool online assessment that will help you discover the source code for the work that you're here to do. You can find it at sparkatype.com. That's S-P-A-R-K-E-T-Y-P-E. Or just click the link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share, share the love. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that you would love to turn into a conversation, share it with people and have that conversation. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.